Welcome to Paper Boys, the podcast where we unravel the research papers behind the latest major headlines in science. Every Thursday, we go to the source of the story to open up the work behind beautiful new discoveries and cut through misinformation in the media. I'm James, and today I'm bringing in a paper about spinal stimulation. Wow, I'm Charlie, and I have not read this paper, and I don't know anything about the subject, so I'm going to have a lot of questions for James. We're both PhD students who read lots of papers for our own research. So this podcast is our way of sharing our love for science with anyone who wants to learn about the discoveries that affect us all. We are the Paper Boys. All right, James, I am very curious about this. You said we're talking about spinal stimulation today. Uh, that's right. So recently, in like the last couple of days, there have been a lot of news articles coming out about spinal stimulation helping paralyzed folks walk. Real, like people who are completely paralyzed and then they can walk again? Yep. Wow. Yep. Okay. So like severe spinal cord injury and sort of no hope and walking again. That's amazing. So what what drew you to these stories in the first place? So as you know, I am in electrical engineering studying wireless implants, but we do a lot with looking at devices that could help people reestablish what we call neuroplasticity. So reestablishing these circuits that have been damaged either through illness or uh, some like trauma. So this research is like the perfect example of how this technology could actually help. So it's super cool for me personally to see a success story and I think it's very relevant for people all over the world because it sort of turns our paradigm on paralysis on its head. Wow, wait, so your actual research is like working on the devices, like the physical electronic devices that enable this kind of spinal stimulation? Yeah. Or that a, could one day? A small piece of it, yeah. Wow, that's amazing. It's cool, and I enjoy it. I, it's super satisfying, but you know, when you're in the research lab as a grad student, student you've probably felt this before, feel like you're just working on this little piece and it may never see the light of day so to actually like see success stories like this gives you at least it gives me a lot of motivation to keep working that's awesome all right so that makes this a very natural choice for you for this episode of paper boys i'm glad i'm glad we have a resident expert who's going to be talking about it <laughs> working working to become an expert i guess but yeah i was super excited to see this and to bring it on the show today where did i see it first many news articles out there New York Times came out with an article saying, once paralyzed, three men take steps again with spinal implant. Mm, wow. Yeah. When? Sorry, when were these stories? These came out just right around Halloween, first week in November. Okay. And the actual p paper itself was published October 31st. Okay. Very recent. CNN said, paralyzed man walks again thanks to spinal implant, which makes sense. I it's guess. a miracle, though. <laughs> Science Daily had one spinal cord stimulation physical therapy helped paralyzed man stand walk with assistance and this one i actually really like there's a pun so oh give it me. give it to me i think this is the best of the headlines a paralyzed man makes great strides with spinal stimulation and rehab mm. that's, a, like that's, that. a, that's a i can respect that yeah it's a heart warmer right it's not distasteful i like it yeah so what's interesting is the paper I'll be talking to you about today came out October 31st, but there's actually been a flurry of papers on the same subject over the last six weeks. Really? Out of the same lab? Out of three different labs. Wow. Are they like working together on this? 
Or it's just total coincidence. I you could even probably say that they're competing groups. There was probably some rush to compete. Ah. Um, just to get the news out. But that classic Halloween push in research. Yep. Like they say, publish on Halloween and Yeah. I don't think it's good things come to those who publish on <laughs> Halloween. Yeah. At least a tasty treat one way or another. Yeah. So um there's a group from University of Louisville, I believe, in Kentucky. A paired group from Mayo Clinic in Minnesota and University of LA, University of California, LA, UCLA. And then a group out of EPFL. It's one of the federal technical institutes in Switzerland, in Lausanne. So the paper I'll be talking to you about is from EPFL, Swiss group, uh, with senior author Gregory Cortine and first author Fabian Wagner. Okay. And what's the title? The title of the paper is... Targeted neurotechnology restores walking in humans with spinal cord injury. That's a nice literal title. I like it. Where where was this published? This was published in Nature with the companion article in, I think, Nature Neurotechnology. Okay. Um, wow. Double Nature publication. Yeah, this was big. It's a big deal. This group has published a lot in Nature, too. They're doing some really cool stuff. Good for them. This paper, as the title suggests, is about what they call epidural spinal stimulation. Epidural, like skin-related? Mm-hmm. So under- I'm, I'm a scientist. I know that word. <laughs> <laughs> so what they're doing, yeah, is it's a surgically invasive procedure. They implant uh, this spinal stimulation device, pretty similar actually to a pacemaker. So there's a small device that does some computations and comes up with the stimulation structure and gives them some programming interface. And then it's actually implanted into their spinal cord. Whoa. Uh, and Just like spots. Doc Ock in Spider-Man 2. <laughs> exactly like Doc Ock in Spider-Man 2. I think. I haven't actually seen the movie. The movie was very ahead of its time, let's just say. Yep. Inspiration for us all. Sorry, I totally derailed you. But (laughs) so you're saying that this is an invasive procedure. They're implanting like a device in their spine. Is that device wirelessly controlled or are they hooked up to some sort of like suit outside of them? So this device that they're using, it does have a wireless interface. And what's cool then is that it allows them to do different programming schemes. So they can do an open loop system where it's just sort of stimulating not at random, but it's not a closed loop. But they can also do closed loop, essentially like uh, thresholding control. So they attach EMG sensors or use some other external sensor to actually fire the stimulation. Okay, hang on. You got re- real technical there. So okay. when you say closed loop, what does that mean? Does that mean that the input that this sensor is going to put into their spine is based on some sort of like feedback that it's getting? Yeah, exactly. So Okay. So sorry, it, before you go on, what is the EMG sensor? EMG is electromyography. An EMG sensor is recording muscle activity. It's something you can put on your skin. And so you could imagine you put it on your arm, there's no signal, you flex your arm, there's more electrical activity, and it measures that electrical activity and you see a boost in the signal. Okay. So tell me if I understand this correctly. The open loop operation of this device is that they just pump in, you know, oh, we're going to put 10 volts into the device and just see what it does to your movement of your arm or your legs. Basically, yeah. And then closed loop is we're going to put in 10 volts and then measure what your arm did using this EMG and then use that measurement to fine-tune our input again. Yeah, yeah. Okay. And you can do what's called then sensor fusion, and you could take in multiple inputs and based on some equations, sort of weight them in different ways and come up with the best response based on these inputs. Okay. What exactly is the goal that they're going for? When you say best response, they're just their goal is here's a person who can't walk. We want them to be able to take one step or we want them to be able to go for a five-mile run. 
So their goal, their initial goal, I think was just to get someone to walk. What's amazing is that for this paper, they had three patients who were working with them and they had been paralyzed for four to seven years. Wow. Usually what they say for people with spinal cord injuries like this, the result in paralysis is that after six months, if they haven't made progress, they sort of say, that's the limit. Like you won't make any more progress after six months. Are you serious? Yeah. So for a long time, the paradigm has really been you have sort of six months to rehab and try to get some improvement on your movement capabilities. And if you don't do it, then that's what you live with for the rest of your life. Dude, talk about pressure. Right? Yeah. But so these are people who have, who basically were like, had given up on any hope of walking again. It's been four years, maybe seven years, and they're saying, there's no chance that I can recover this. Yeah. And so this is a total game changer. Wow. That's incredible. Yeah. And before we get into some of the details and implications, we've talked about some of it already. It's important to note that their test size was three patients. So it's not very large. Right. But so, I'm sure it's very hard to build these devices and then implement them in someone. And then the testing probably takes weeks or months with any given patient, right? Absolutely. Absolutely. But so there may be specific attributes that they have we haven't really uncovered that made them better candidates or worse candidates. So that overall applicability to other people with spinal cord injuries. Did they mention, have they worked with other patients with this device that didn't succeed? They did notice varying success among the patients. For example, two of them were like up and walking again. One of them can walk up to like a half mile now. Dude, with just no the way. help of like a, a rolling, like a walker, rolling walker. Yeah, can remember that word. <laughs> that's um, incredible. Half mile. Yeah, I mean that's amazing. And I think the other patients from reading the paper, it sounds like had varying results. But guess what is super cool about this? Uh, that these paralyzed people can walk again. <laughs> well, that's awesome, right? Yeah. So okay. what could be more cool? When you turn the stimulation off after all these rehab sessions that they did. They also regained voluntary muscle control. What? So they were able to essentially recreate either new or readapt existing neural pathways for generating motor movement. That so they could turn the device off and, you know, after five months of rehab with these devices, they could voluntarily control their legs. That is insane. Isn't it? It's like it's fixing what was broken, not just temporarily, but like actually repairing everything. Yeah, like it's literal neural engineering. You're like re-engineering the neural pathways from the brain to the muscles. Wow. Do they know anything about how exactly that works? Like are any of these people, are these people neuroscientists? Do they, do they expect that result or what? That's a great question. So a lot of people have been investigating this. We've known about the effects of like neuroplasticity in different forms for a while. They're still not 100% sure how or through what mechanism when all these cases with the spinal cord injury, there are still some existing pathways called like descending pathways because they're going from the brain out to the periphery. Some of the thought is like, if these still exist, but they're not being used, maybe they can adapt to a new function. And so you get some, some adaptation in that sense. So maybe the pathways that they had before that were used for their brain to control their legs to walk, those may be permanently damaged, you're saying? But maybe they had something else that was for their toes to wiggle that they can sort of repurpose for moving their quads or something. Yeah, you could kind of think of it like that. I mean, there's no free lunch, so you're probably giving up something. But yeah, you're they're really starting from next to nothing um, in terms of like what sensory, like what they can feel and then motor what they can move. And so 
they're able to repurpose some other nerves that weren't being used anymore to actually get this function back. Wait, so, and this is probably just my ignorance of the field of, I don't know, paralysis and this physical therapy type of stuff. As they're gaining this ability to walk, are they also regaining the ability to feel in their legs? They're getting some sensations back, yeah. Wow. So through this and several other stimulation studies that I looked at, they've talked, there's like firsthand accounts that from them talking about like as soon as the stimulation's turned on, they feel this tingling coming from their limbs that they hadn't felt since they were paralyzed. Wow, like right off the bat. Yeah. That's really cool. Wait, I'm kind of curious. I want to step back now and get a little more technical because like, I mean, all of the these results are amazing and the implications are crazy, but... I'm kind of curious how this device actually works. Is it just like a a single electrode that's just putting a current into someone's spine or is it more nuanced than that? So that's a great question. And that's what differentiates this study from the other ones, the ones at Louisville and UCLA. So this study is using both spatial and temporal diversity in the stimulation. So they're stimulating at different points at different points in time in order to get the result. And what they found is that this is more effective in contrast to just continuous stimulation. Wait, so how do they get stimulation at different locations? Is there like a whole series? And, and when you say stimulation, what is that? Is it just like a needle that's, that's like jammed into you? So it's a, it's a good question. I'll take a step back. We'll start with what is stimulation? Yeah, because I'm, I'm, I'm trying to keep up with you, but it's hard I get to understand. Excited. Yeah. I get excited and I start to just rambling on it. So stimulation in a like neural engineering perspective means you're injecting current into nervous tissue okay like you're taking a battery and like running energy into the muscle or something yeah into nerves into nerves into nerves so like in a very crude sense you could think like you poke two wires into a nerve cell and then you attach them to a battery and suddenly you have this current that's running through that would be bad because you would burn the tissue so that gives you an indication that all right maybe we have to stimulate in a slightly more nuanced way Okay. And you there's a lot of studies on like what specific waveforms you have to use and how much current and like the shape of the waveform has a big impact on the effect. So people have done studies on that and there's a lot to build on in order to sorry in order to not damage the nerves because you don't want to actually physically burn the tissue. Gotcha. Gotcha. And so what they do then for this epidural spinal stimulation is they actually go into the spinal cord and they tap different roots. So there's spinal roots, they call them, going down your spinal cord. They know roughly where they map to. This was what was really cool getting into the experimental side of the work. They have a very good map through different scanning techniques of which parts of the spinal cord are activated when you're moving different parts of your leg. Oh, wow. And so they say, like, they identify the specific vertebrae and then where they need to stimulate, like, upper left to get this muscle to go, bottom right to get, like, your flexor or your extender. And so they can start planning where to put the electrodes. So they are putting the electrodes in the right places that they know are the muscles they need in order to walk. But then are the scientists, like, animating the legs? Like, have you ever played that internet video game Quop? No, what is Quop? Quop. Just anyone listening, Google Quop, Q-W-O-P. It's like you just use the four keys, Q-W-O-N-P, and you have to make this track <laughs> runner run like 100 meters, but they, they Dude, run like a complete silly, you know, idiot. So that is like the real life human version of this, except then they got a lot more nuance and got a lot better control. But so what I'm getting Good at block. is that 
it's the scientists are like quapping these paralyzed people or is, that, them. or is it that the paralyzed <laughs> people have now have like a way to use their brain to control their legs so that's a great question right so who's actually controlling the legs then yeah the patients are actually controlling it so in that sense the stimulator is acting as an amplifier okay wait i just thought of another analogy to this you know okay. that episode of spongebob where plankton takes that controller and he jams it in spongebob's brain and then he's Moving yes. the two sticks? Yes. Okay, so you're saying it's not quite like that. Because they didn't actually go into the brain, which is... Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, I'm talking the cartoon version, but... No, no, no. But but the thing is, like, it is that, except it's amazing because they didn't actually have to go into the brain. Oh, I see. So that's why that's why you say it's acting like an amplifier. Like, it's sort of, it's on the path between the brain and the muscles. The brain is sort of sending a signal down that's not reaching the muscles, but instead it's going to reach the sensor, which is going to say, oh, I heard you. Let me send the new signal down. Yes, because whoa, what's amazing is, I mean, this device is implanted below the spinal cord injury. So normally with spinal cord injuries, you're paralyzed for everything below where the they call it a lesion occurs. Oh, wow. And so this is this means like there's some existing electro, electrical activity that's coming down. And they're able to harness that and actually use it to help control these movements. That's incredible. I mean, that's like, I mean, this goes without saying, but that's a huge breakthrough. <laughs> yeah. And, you know, the case that I'm talking about in this nature paper, it's invasive, right? They actually have to go in. There's a lot of scanning they do to figure out the sites. They install an electrode array. After it's implanted surgically, they actually do this test where they quap the person <laughs> because they want to verify which sites control what. And so they stimulate one specific uh, electrode and they see what muscle moves and they measure it. Wow. And then they go to the next electrode and they're like, well, oh, whoops, that one's attached to your quad. We thought that was your hamstring. Not, you know, like, yeah, no, I sense yeah. what it so, is. I mean, so I'm like, amazed that these people like signed up to do this. Like imagine being that kind of a guinea pig, you know? Yeah. Uh, yeah. I mean, it, they're really putting themselves out there. But so what's cool is so actually at the University of Washington, which is where we are. Yeah. Um, Spoiler alert, everyone. That's, Spoiler where we, alert. that's where we're grad students. Hopefully there isn't a conflict of interest talking about this. <laughs> but they're doing really cool research here with non-invasive transcutaneous spinal stimulation. So this is just a, an electrode patch that you would put on the spinal cord. And so they've done these tests. They are awesome videos. I'll link them on the page when we post this. So people with like different spinal cord injuries or neurodegenerative diseases... You lose control of your limbs. You start shaking a lot. Yeah. They found with the transcutaneous spinal stimulation from the first trial where they turn it on, these patients have great and much improved motor control, like for things like feeding themselves. They can do the like little tasks like that or these, it's called like a pegboard test. Really? You move pegs in a board. Really? And this is something in their spine that did this. This is just a patch on their spinal cord that's, uh, with this, uh, it's like an AC current going through. Wait, and didn't even have to like go beneath the skin. No surgery. That's incredible because I've seen, I've heard of people with like Parkinson's, for example. Mm -hmm. Some of them can get these implants, but it's like deep in your brain. Yeah. And then when it turns on, it makes it so you can stabilize your hand and you can eat. But I mean, that's incredibly invasive. Yeah. You're talking about they're doing the exact same thing, but with literally just a little electric patch, like a sticker on your skin. Yes, it will, and it, it's worth noting that they're, they're very different treatments for very different things. The deep brain stimulators work great for Parkinson's. Okay, okay. This is, uh, this is more for like regaining motor control. I I'm, see. I'm not sure what the overlap is, so 
I'm not sure if it's like a one-for-one stand-in. Okay. But I mean, totally non-invasive, amazing results. And what they found similarly in that realm of neuroplasticity is that after repeated sessions with the stimulation, they can go for like a year without the stimulation and still see the same achieved results. That's so incredible. the same ability to stabilize their arms and feed themselves faster and do this specific pegboard test much quicker. Dude, this is like actually a miracle. It's actually, yeah. I mean, it's it's fascinating. These videos are insane. It's cool being a graduate student at the University of Washington and getting to work with these people like Professor Chet Moritz, who actually wrote a review of the Nature paper at Nature. It's cool to see one of your professors talking about it. That's do you you Do you know this professor? Uh, he's teaching one of the classes I'm in right now. Oh, wow. Okay. Yeah. Well, major conflict of interest. We'll probably have to yeah. delete this episode <laughs> or give back all of the many millions of dollars we make off of this episode. Yeah, all the millions. All the millions. <laughs> um, so I still sort of have a question here. You said that this paper where they, these three patients had the epidural spinal stimulation implant thing. Yeah. Um, you said that there were two other papers that were related. Mm-hmm. Did they use a similar method and did they have a similar level of success like why did you choose this paper so i chose this paper that's a great question because the group at epfl is using what's called patterned electrical stimulation uh, instead of continuous stimulation and what they found was that the patterned electrical stimulation essentially gave the subjects better control so louisville's paper and uh the mayo clinic slash ucla's as far as i understand it um, if anyone knows something I don't, please let me know. Um, but so they showed walking in the lab, which is a great feat. But and they were using continuous stimulation. They're using continuous stimulation. And what does that mean again? So that's just continuously stimulating. And what they found is that it sort of acts as an amplifier. So like with the transcutaneous case that I mentioned, they think that that's essentially helping to amplify these signals that have been reduced in amplitude. So like maybe there's a signal coming down. You know, like neurons have to reach a certain threshold of voltage to fire and action potential I I learned a little bit about this once yeah exactly yeah and so what they think is like if the signal's damaged and it's not quite reaching the action potential as like a rough high level explanation maybe this transcutaneous spinal stimulation gives you it sort of lowers the threshold okay so it just makes it easier for the neurons to fire if you're just sort of giving an electrical current into the spine Exactly. Okay. Yeah. So then, everything. then to clarify, the pattern is where they're trying to do the co-op thing. So yeah. So with the pattern, they're they're selectively stimulating. So that's where sort of that temporal aspect comes in. Gotcha. They're not just stimulating all the time. They're doing it very deliberately in certain areas. And okay. the cool thing is that they actually think that this is helping with proprioception. So helping these patients feel their legs and have a better sense of where they are and how they feel. Oh, really? And that, dude, that's, I mean, that's probably huge for like injury prevention stuff, right? Yeah. I mean, sense sensations are huge. And there's really cool videos and studies before on like how losing that sense or this proprioception affects people's accuracy with movements. I saw there, a great video in a research talk the other day where someone, this lady was given a task to light a match and then they numbed her index finger and thumb and it took her like five times as long because it's that much wow. more difficult that's crazy wait so i i sort of derailed you a minute ago though you you were talking about the other two studies and you said that they only really showed this in the lab how is that different from the new study so the new study takes it a little bit farther and they actually get this one of these patients there's a great video 
showing him actually walking outside by the lake with his walker. Oh. And they, they developed an app, too, so that the patients using voice control can control when the stimulation is on or off. All right. So the EPFL group sounds like they're just way closer to like an actual product version of this, like something that you could roll out to paralyzed people on a, on a larger scale. Whereas the other two studies have shown the effect in the lab. But what we find in our research in grad school is that there's a very major difference between showing something in a lab and actually being able to implement it on a commercial scale. Yeah, yeah. And, and it, maybe it's not so much like the product level, except that they were able to do it with three people simultaneously. So it's like, it's a slightly richer data set. Right. And I mean, one of the articles was published in the New, uh, New England Journal of Medicine. So it's certainly... Both of these other articles are like super high quality. It's just slightly different methods and slightly different approaches. So they all, I think you could view them all three together, especially since they came out around the same time as all three really advancing the state of spinal stimulation. Yeah. I guess the point I was trying to make is that this third study, the EPFL study, sounds like it's the one that kind of triggered the mainstream media to jump on. Even though all three are being covered, no one was, the, News wasn't really covering it until this third study came out, right? There were a couple news articles that came out. Since they're all coming out at the same time, they got a little mixed, I think. Okay. Um, and okay. so I think, the yeah, like you said, the news really latched on on this third one, probably more so. But if you looked at different news sites, maybe you'd find different ones. Okay. So it's really like the combination of all three that matters. Yeah. So- well, all right. So I've talked a lot about spinal stimulation and the effects it has. But do you actually want to see the video of the guy walking again? Yeah, definitely. It's really impressive. Oh, whoa. This guy is like, he. well, he's standing between those bars that you see in those, in like a physical therapy office, but he's not touching them at all. Walking totally under his own volition. That's like extremely impressive. Whoa, there's like lots of, they have like a lot of crazy graphics it looks like that are very, I mean, they look awesome. I just don't really understand them. Yeah, it, it takes a little bit of diving into, but you know, I'm a sucker for graphics and this is a great paper. It's like, 29 pages long and there's like six pages of text the rest are graphics it's like a picture book yeah that's amazing and so uh actually diving into the graphics i think one last cool thing to really highlight from this is a surprising finding that they found was hopefully i won't butcher this bring it on (laughs) the podcast they found that the stimulation frequency that they used was different for flexor and extensor muscles whoa and in fact it was inversely proportional so you'll get more muscle activity for one at a higher frequency and less in the other muscle and less activity for the other and vice versa. Wait, so an extensor muscle is one that like pushes and a flexor muscle is one that like pulls? Am I wrong about that? Yeah, so like tricep would be extensor. Ah, uh, I see. And bicep would be flexor. I see. And so wait, so those two different muscles have like opposite profiles of what frequency stimulates them. Exactly. Yeah. What? Yep. I wonder if that gives, that might be like a discovery that could give insight into like how the brain and how your nerves work. Like Uh, I wonder if that's something that they understood before or this is like a completely new insight into like kinesiology. Yeah, potentially, at least as far as like engineering prosthetics. So there are definitely cases like in neuroscience of inhibitory versus excitatory neurons. So maybe it's playing off something like that, but it's, I think it's pretty fascinating. Yeah, I feel like, like they should dive into that. Yeah, you look at the graph too, and it's just like almost like a perfect X. Wow. With the two intersecting and going in different directions in relation to the frequency. So That's incredible. It, I mean, maybe like the mechanism there is that 
it just allows for like one frequency control to control a full motion. You could just say like, oh, go to higher frequency. That means you're going to extend your arm and a lower frequency means you're going to, you're going to bend your arm. You don't have to like do complicated control of both muscles. You can kind of control them both with the same thing. Yeah. Yeah. I says, I don't even know. Says Charlie, the brain scientist. <laughs> <laughs> I, I know so well. It's cool, right? Like it opens up a lot. You can start to imagine so many different applications. Right. I mean, here it is like me having absolutely no knowledge in this field and like not really reading about it before. And it's just, it's completely sparked my curiosity. Like I, I am dying to know more now. Yeah. Yeah. It's really cool research. I can't wait to see what comes from these different research groups and also University of Washington, see what else comes yeah. from it. So, and we'll post that video on, uh, on our website, paperboyspodcast.com. Yeah. Yep. So you can definitely check it out. So that's the paper. There's tons more information I'd love to dive into, but I think we did as well as we can for the time that we have. I mean, 29 pages. I'm impressed you got this in one episode. Man, I We could have made this a four-parter. Seriously. Yeah. Every little graphic was like a paper on its own. So now I'm curious, given that this is such a like a revolutionary study or set of studies and that could have a huge impact on our lives, I'm curious how this has entered the mainstream. Like, is it responsibly covered or are people's hopes getting up based on bad news coverage what, what did you think based on you know now that you've read the paper how did the news do i actually thought the paper was very well represented in popular news media you know as a researcher i was obviously excited to dive into the paper and actually see the experimental methods because i think it's really insightful just how much work goes into it when you just read the news article online, the general vibe is like, you know, they implanted this thing in the spine and with some stimulation, they got these people walking again. But to actually like see all of the work and mapping and the different experiments they need to do to validate the system talks about how hard of a problem it is. So like the progress is great. It's still a really challenging problem. And I think even coming away from reading the paper, I'm not totally sure what the long-term challenges would be with this going forward. So I'm I'm curious, given that there's so much in this paper and that a news article is only so long, you told me all kinds of super fascinating things like about the proprioception and the inverse frequencies and continuous versus patterned. Patterned. Yep. Um, how much of that kind of the juicy details were in these news stories versus like it seems like a lot of times you see these news stories will just be like, oh, this device helped three people walk. Here's a couple caveats. And then they'll just do like. 10 paragraphs of kind of discussing the larger, broader societal implications of paralysis. Totally. So that's a great question. They did get into some of the specifics about pattern stimulation, especially since there was this like burst of three papers in roughly the same time. So to sort of differentiate them, they did bring that up. Okay. It helped too that they got some uh, sound bites from the actual researchers too. So they were able to really talk about like what were the key points. EPFL did a really good news release video, too, that highlighted the key points. So I think it was helpful from the news media side to latch on to that. Okay. Well, that's good. That's good to know that it's not. Hopefully, these stories aren't promising, like, miracle cure that's going to have everyone walking again in, in six months, you know? Yeah, yeah. It's an easy thing to irresponsibly report on. Yep. I only saw responsible reporting, fortunately. Good. But you know, it's the internet. You probably don't have to Google too far to find some pretty crazy things. Yeah. A little bit of selection bias. You pick the good stories, but yeah, exactly. Well, 
So while I'm sad to move on from that paper, I am excited to go to our grad student highlight for the week, where we'll be introducing Mirena Hernandez. Yeah, if you're tuning in for the first time uh, to this episode of Paperboys, our grad student highlight is a segment we do every week where we give a grad student somewhere around the country or the world uh, a chance to tell us a little bit about themselves and their research and what they're passionate about, um, how they like to communicate their science to others. And it's just really a way for us to humanize research here on Paperboys and give an opportunity to other students to share their work with everyone else. Myrand is coming to us today from the University of Wisconsin in Madison, where she's a research assistant in the Injury in Sport Lab. We'll let Myrena explain her research for you. Hi, my name is Mayra Hernandez, and I'm a first-year doctoral student in the Wisconsin Injury and Sport Laboratory. I graduated with a Bachelor of Science in Athletic Training from the University of Texas at Arlington, so I'm an athletic trainer by trade. I went on to receive my Master's of Public Health from Kansas State University while I worked with the Kansas State cross-country and track and field teams. My research interests include investigating the processes of rehabilitation and to better understand why certain lower extremity injuries occur and how rehab can be applied to reduce injury reoccurrence. My public health background has also influenced my research interests in socioeconomic status in relation to sports specialization and healthcare equity. Currently in the Wisconsin Injury and Sport Lab, I'm researching the level of agreement on parent and children as well as parent-child dyads on the factors that are associated with sports specialization. A previous study in our lab identified sports specialization by asking children or their parents a set of three yes or no questions. These questions were, do you play or do you train in a single sport more than eight months per year? Can you identify a primary sport? Have you ever quit a sport to focus on a single sport or have you only ever played a single sport before? If participants answered yes to all three, they were considered a highly specialized athlete. Answering yes to two was categorized as a moderate, and one or zero was a low specialization. Theoretically, a highly specialized athlete is enduring intensive training, and that results in repetitive motions causing muscle imbalances, which can increase injury risk, specifically overuse injuries. Compared to athletes who played a wide variety of sports, youth who were highly specialized the most are 81% more likely to experience an overuse injury. This information has led me to continue researching on how parents and children answer questions related to sports specialization, because ultimately the level of specialization labeled can be dependent on who is answering these questions and can affect the protocol set in place by healthcare professionals for the good of the patient. There are many more questions I have related to sports specialization, but currently within my first few months as a PhD student, this has been my focus. Thank you for having me on this great podcast and allowing me to highlight on the work we are doing in relation to sports injuries. Well, thank you, Marina. It sounds like she's doing work in uh, injury rehab. It kind of fits with the theme of today's show. Yeah, it's a perfect fit. Thank you so much, Marina, for sharing about your research. Really excited to highlight it here. Well, thank you, everybody, for listening as well. Uh, please subscribe to the show or better yet, tell a friend about the show. Just say anyone you know who you think is kind of into science, just be like, hey, good podcast called Paperboys. Check it out. Yeah. Check us out. Our website is paperboyspodcast.com. Feel free to comment on the episodes there. Hit us up on Twitter at paperboyspod or on Instagram. I've developed a new addiction to Instagram. I would love it <laughs> if you add us or refer us there. You can always send us your comments as well at paperboyspod at gmail.com. Yeah. And if you go to check out the website again, paperboyspodcast.com, we'll be posting uh, those three papers there today, we'll post a couple news articles and the video that James showed me that is very fascinating. We'll also have an Instagram 
handle up for Myrena. So if you have any further questions about her research or would like to learn more, you can definitely contact her there. Thanks, guys, so much. And join us next week for another exciting edition of Paper Boys. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.